This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is Alex Messenger. In 2005, when he was aged just 17, Alex was on a canoeing trip with some pals in the Canadian wilderness when he was attacked by a 600-pound grizzly bear. He almost died, but eventually recovered. However, his story is one of drama, adventure and trauma, a trauma that Alex still lives with today and which he has written an account of in his brilliant new book, The 29th Day. I was delighted he joined me from his home in America to talk about the mental health impact that this incident had on him and his life. I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. Alex Messenger, welcome to The Reset. Thank you for having me. Thanks for sparing the time to speak to us all the way from Duluth, Minnesota today um, by Lake Superior. Sounds absolutely gorgeous part of the world. Um and, you know, one of my first questions was going to be, you know, when we go back to this sort of, you know, crucial turning point moment, I guess, in, in your life, you were on um, uh, a kayaking trip with a bunch of with a bunch of your buddies. Right. Um, so you're clearly someone who enjoys adventure. Is, yep. is that is that what you've always been like? You know, I've always been into um, adventure. You know, for me, it, it's a canoeing trip. I don't know if that's you know <laughs> a critical yeah. thing to uh, to switch to, but um, I've always been into adventure and uh, getting outside. And I really owe that to my parents. Um, you know, they kind of instilled in me this idea that it's okay to be outside of your comfort zone and to be experiencing uh, these amazing things. So they they taught me that through traveling internationally when i was young they both were working at university at the time and so we got to go on trips with them uh, my sister and i and then they started taking us out into the wilderness and and that uh, just really spurred this love of being outside and and of kind of these crucible experiences where you're put into a situation where 
you have to deal with stressors and kind of overcome challenges. And um, I think that's a big part of what has driven me to continue those experiences throughout my life. Is that what kind of positive impact does that have on your mental health? Do you feel in sort of normal life, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think anytime you you um, are in a space where you can kind of disconnect and uh, slow down, you know, take a minute to to change your perspective. I think that's really helpful. Um, you know, for me personally, being able to be in a place where you're not getting bombarded with all those usual, you know, alerts and time constraints and things and, and where you're able to focus on what's in front of you. I find that very cathartic and restorative. Um, you know, even it's kind of, kind of funny because when you look at these experiences, a lot of times you're dealing with some, some major challenges, um, you know, physical or just mental, you know, combining those mm. two as well. Um, but the the amount that you get back from from a trip like that is just amazing you know a lot of people talk about with the boundary waters canoe area wilderness in northern minnesota here um that's where i really started my wilderness stuff um but they talk about how you know they have to go every year or however often they go and it's like a critical part of their um restoring themselves and i completely agree but just the resilience and the lessons learned from putting yourself uh, or taking yourself out of your danger zone on those kind of trips. Does how does that help when you're living, when you go back to the ordinary life of being at home, paying bills, fielding emails and all the other stuff that people just have <laughs> in day-to-day -day life? Does it, does it help you cope better? Do you feel? I do. I feel like, the perspective that you gain when you learn more about yourself and you learn more about what you're capable of mm. that completely translates you know picking up a heavy pack and and portaging it over miles you know that's very different of course from having a stressful project at work that you have to power through but there's a lot of overlap in um, that kind of mental fortitude and recognizing when something's challenging, where you go to find that energy and to find that spark to continue that work. So I think that's a big part of it, you know, outside of just the feeling like your, your tank is refilled uh, from going on a trip like this. You come back with some tools that are kind of embedded in you and more in your subconscious than anything that you can apply. Alex, take us back to July 2005. Uh, why were you in um, the Canadian Northwest? Where exactly were you? Who were you with? What was going on? Yeah, so in 2005, I was 17 years old, and I was on the pinnacle trip um, with YMCA Camp Minogen. We were on our 52-day uh, session. We were going to be on trail for 42 days, whitewater canoeing over 600 miles in the remote wilderness of northern Canada from the Northwest Territories um, through Nunavut province. So this is a trip that we had all worked up towards for years. Um, you know, this was my fourth trip. And for the other guys, it was at least that many if not more. So each year we went on a longer and longer trip um, and built our skills and our experience and 
were invited back, um, you know, year after year to come finally to this, this pinnacle journey. So we were paddling on, uh, a few different river systems, the Dubois, Kunwak and Kazan, and basically, um, completely unsupported on this journey, um, to this tiny little town at the end of our route called Baker Lake, which is a thousand miles north of the U S Canadian border. So it's just this, this very remote space that, uh, is, you know, you're not likely to see anyone else the entire time you're out there. And so it's, it's just everything that we'd worked on for years prior to this, but on a completely different scale. Is, um, and, and was that level of remoteness from anywhere from healthcare, you know, emergency support, any of that stuff, was that scary to you or is that something that you a hundred percent embraced? Is that why you were there? hundred <laughs> percent is a pretty, pretty, uh, intense number, yeah. but, um, I was, I was very into it and, you know, I had experienced wilderness, um, wilderness on a scale where, you know, you are completely reliant on yourself and your teammates. Um, but the, the, the scale of this one was on a whole nother level. I mean, I think the most, uh, the most poignant example of that was we just drove and drove to the end of the road to start this trip. And then at the end of the road, we got into a, a bush plane and we flew for hours before getting dropped off on this lake in the middle of nowhere. The entire time we were flying, there was nothing around except wow. for, you know, undeveloped land. And so when we landed and got all our stuff out and got ready to wave bye to the pilots. That's like when it really started to sink into me how remote we were. And when they flew off, it kind of was this pit of the stomach feeling like, okay, am I, <laughs> am, am I making the right decision? You know, like I'd never had that suddenness of, of being out there, you know, with every other trip, we made our way gradually to the place where we'd be launching and, you know, you'd, you'd paddle away. And if you forgot your socks, you could turn around and come back. Um, and with this one, you just don't have that uh, that same thing. Like the level of commitment is just so much more intense. But after those butterflies left and I, you know, settled into the surroundings, I was just really, you know, focused and, and ready to go. And that was a, a feeling that, you know, I, I fell into that familiarity of having been on that before. And that was good because that those butterflies were pretty intense. Okay, I bet. But um, on your list of uh, of things to sort of feel at all anxious about yeah. um, was was encountering a bear particularly high. You know, we were aware of bears in the area we were going to be traveling in. And um, so that was on our list of of concerns and things that we were prepared for. There were a lot of other things that we had on our, our list. We were worried about, you know, with white water, especially where we were, it was really cold water. Um, there's a lot of risks that you have to manage to make sure that you don't end up in the water. And if you do end up in the water, you know what to do and and you're able to respond to, you know, challenges like the cold and hypothermia and things like that. And um, there's myriad things that can happen on the river. So we'd gone through a lot of training for that. You know, um, we were worried about other large mammals up there. Um, 
we had a substantial med kit and our guide Dan was a wilderness first responder. So he had a lot of training as well to deal with um, medical and trauma issues in an austere environment where you're away from definitive medical care. Um, and, you know, with, with bears, we, uh, we were going to be outside of the grizzly territory for the first few weeks of the trip. And then we were going to enter grizzly territory. Um, so we had a plan for how we'd set up camp. We'd gone through all these different, you know, tools that we had with us. Like we had bear spray, which is like a little fire extinguisher that shoots mace like 40 feet, um, to use as a deterrent. If you have a close encounter with the bear, we had bear poppers, which is a loud noisemaker that's intended to scare the bear away if it's a little bit further and, you know, how we conduct ourselves when we encounter a bear. But the actuality is like the density of bears in this area, even once we got into their, their home range, uh, it's such a low density. You're really not likely to see a bear. We've been told by folks who'd been there uh, numerous years that uh, you're lucky if you see a grizzly bear when you're up there. So um, you know, not likely that we're going to see one at all. Um, we were going to be north of the tree line by the time we entered this area. And so the likelihood of stumbling upon one is even lower because you can see for forever. I mean, this isn't really mountainous. It's mostly flat. Um, so the line of sight is, is just incredible. So, um, we were prepared for them. We weren't expecting to, uh, necessarily see any, and we weren't expecting certainly to stumble upon one so the day that you did um you 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 wandered away is that right you wandered up up uh, up to towards a peak that had a, had a very famous view from the top of it is that is that why you wandered away from your group yeah well the reason i wandered away from the group group was because everyone was going up to the top of this ridge which was just behind our camp for that day on day 29 and uh when they all went up i was just I was really tired <laughs> and so I uh decided that I was going to take a nap while they all went up there and that I would I would meet them when I woke up um and I overslept and by the time I got up the only person left up there was Dan and he was on his way back so I ended up heading up there myself because everyone else was back and you know I still wanted to go up there and um we didn't we didn't feel like there was any risk with my going up there um you know they'd just been there minutes before it's the highest point around you can see every lake for probably 50 miles in every direction and so the uh the idea of something uh lurking and and suddenly appearing just was kind of outside of our paradigm right then tell me about the moment you first realized you were in the presence of a bear then yeah. So I uh, got to the top of this ridge and I was walking away from camp towards the areas that, that the guys had told me about. And I was just kind of in my own head walking up these rolling granite domes. And I I didn't know it, but there was this 600 pound barren ground grizzly bear walking up the other side of one of these ridges. And we were walking straight towards each other. So that first instance that I realized that I was in the presence of something besides just me and my own thoughts was when I saw this little flash of brown fur on the horizon, just out of the corner of my eye. And my body instantly flashed into this kind of uh, <laughs> um, very central 
part of my brain and experience where it's alerted to movement in the distance. Well, not so far distant. And I instantly thought, oh no, this is a muskox and this is a really bad situation. And then another fraction of a second later, and the head of this grizzly bear came up over the ridge. And I realized that it was not a muskox, it was a grizzly bear, and it was a much worse situation than stumbling on a muskoxen. So I made that recognition, and the bear, its head snapped up, and we kind of both had the same reaction, which was, oh my gosh, what am I looking at? And so I flashed back to that training, what we've been told to do when we see a grizzly bear. I, I imagined pulling the bear spray out of its holster and removing the safety and aiming it and firing it but I didn't have it with me. That was not our practice to carry them. So this bear deterrent that we had was in our tents and, and not usable. So that was a big, uh, <laughs> that was a big challenge. Um, and I, uh, then flashback to that training. And so I, I had Dan's voice in my head, you know, saying, speak calmly to the bear, avoid eye contact, back away slowly and whatever you do, don't run. And that was, most what I wanted to do was just run away and get away from this bear. But I, I had that training and I knew that's what I couldn't do. So I started backing away slowly and averting my eyes. And I said, Hey bear, whoa, bear, it's okay, bear. And it, uh, it basically started into some bluff charges. And so it was looking at me and, and it would launch forward on its front paws and grunt and be like, <laughs> and I kept backing away slowly, trying to speak calmly to this bear and convince it that it that it didn't need to worry about me and that we could part ways and uh basically it faded from stationary bluff charges to a full speed charge and uh it was just this 600 pound apex predator grizzly bear against this 17 year old 150 pound kid with uh basically nothing and that's when it was just apparent that this was going to get much worse very quickly uh, so when when you sorry first when you spotted it first, how many yards was it when you first saw it? When I first saw the bear, it was about ten yards, thirty feet away. Wow! So super close. Wow. Basically, yeah. when your closing distance is that short, that forces the hand of the bear, and it has to decide, you know, fight or flight, and it's essentially too close for it to run away. It can't. So, so the bear didn't see you as prey as much as a threat that needed to be eradicated. Exactly. Yeah. I was a threat that had to be eliminated. And uh, that's what it was going to do. You know, it was going to see how I responded to those initial bluff charges and then um, escalate as needed. <laughs> so, and so yeah. once you realized it was charging at you for real, what, what happened then? So I, I realized that it was coming at me and uh, it wasn't going to stop. It was kind of like I could see this switch flip in, uh, in the bear's, you know, consciousness to anthropomorphize it a bit. But I, uh, I didn't know what to do at that point other than not run away. You know, people talk about playing dead and that just, it didn't cross my mind at that point. Um, and so as I'm backing away slowly, um, I escalated from hey bear, whoa bear to yelling obscenities and help and trying to alert my my tripmates who, you know, overall weren't too far away, but 
up with the ridge and the distance and the wind. Um, they didn't hear anything. They had no idea that anything was going on on top of this ridge, despite this cacophony of what the bear was doing and the grunting and the um, and and me yelling. And when it was uh, five or ten feet from me, just coming at me full speed, I could feel the ground shaking under its paws with its gallop. Wow. I had my pelican case, which is like a fifteen-pound brick of camera in my hand, and just like on intuition. I cocked my hand back and I chucked that underhand and it's the only time I'll throw my camera. It's also the only time a throw mine hit something it was supposed to because I was a terrible <laughs> shot at the time, <laughs> but I just launched that underhand and I hit the bear square in the nose with enough force to turn its head all the way to the side. And so the pelican case went tumbling over its shoulder and it grunted from the impact. And for a couple of its steps, it couldn't see where I was because its head was turned in the other direction. And so I was able to jump out of the way and dodge it bullfighting style on that first pass and just, you know, barely missed each other. And um, I wasn't thinking at all about that. It just was kind of happening on instinct. And uh, as soon as it realized that it had missed me, it's got its head turned back around. Um, it turned its body back towards me for a second pass. And I've never seen anything move as quickly as that bear did turning around to come at me again wow so that so it's a surprisingly agile creature for something so gigantic yeah it's crazy how quickly they can move and <laughs> swing that body around i mean that's a huge amount of mass but you know they're they're used to it it's kind of like watching a i don't know <laughs> a really good football player just step and pivot but that doesn't even come to come close to describing it <laughs> You think that that um, bag, that sort of almost one in a million shot of your pelican bag at the bear's head saved your life? It could have. I mean, it certainly gave me um, the little bit that I needed to get out of its way. I mean, it, I imagine if I hadn't done that, that it just would have um, barreled me over on that first pass and just taken me down. And, you know, just just being thrown down from that um, would have been really bad and then i'm sure it would have launched into um, whatever attack it had been planning to incapacitate me which i think would have been more grievous than what ended up happening so what had it happened at second pass um it turned ran at you again and, and what happened that time yeah so it came at me again um and we i, I basically was able to to bullfight it like that for another few passes so it would come at me and I would jump out of the way at the last second and we got closer and closer every time and each time it would get me a little bit with its claws and it would snap at me with its jaws and um, I couldn't tell what what impact those were having on me but I felt them um, and then finally uh, it snapped at my leg with its jaws on like the fourth pass or so and I pulled my leg out of the way at the last second and its teeth just snapped shut inches from my leg with like this big crack sound. And at that same moment, it reached up with its paw and it hit me across the face. And I remember seeing that just inches from my face and thinking, oh no, <laughs> mm. this is, this is about to hit me. And, uh, when it did, I was just like a mosquito getting swatted out of the air and, just grunted from the impact and and realized with that amount of force how 
unfair of a fight this was and how I just didn't provide any resistance to this bear. It was so much more powerful than I was. And my head whipped to the side and I went flying to the side. And as I was in mid fall, it had its paw around me and it threw me down to the ground hard on my tailbone. And at the same instant, it had its head right at the top of my leg and it had its teeth around my thigh um, just below the hip joint and it clamped down and people are like, so did the adrenaline rush take care of the pain? Well, it, it didn't. I felt its teeth go in both sides of my leg and then wow. blacked out. And uh, I, as, as this had all been unfolding, I'd kind of shifted from help and bear and, and obscenities to just yelling no um, because I felt like I was about to die. And that was just like such a horrible horrible feeling for me and it just felt like such loss and like um it wasn't how things were supposed to be happening and then uh and then that all unfolded and the lights went out so you you blacked out and when you came round what did you find well when i came round i it came in flickers first so i i didn't just like open my eyes I kind of started to perceive the grass and everything was kind of spinning and when I finally got my equilibrium and saw the horizon I realized that I wasn't dead and it was just this feeling of elation and excitement and confusion because I didn't really know what was going on but I was really excited that I that I wasn't dead that I was still up on that hill and I scanned the horizon um, from where I'd finally found it and saw that the bear was still there. And uh, I froze at that point and was just immediately filled again with with dread. <laughs> but this bear was running away and it was looking at me the entire time that it was running away. So it was heading back in what looked like the direction it had come and just going from shoulder to shoulder to keep an eye on me. And at this point, I played dead consciously. So I'd been playing dead really effectively when I was unconscious. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so I didn't want the bear to think that, that I was back in it, that not that I was in the fight, but that I was, you know, um, conscious and that there was anything else for it to do. So I played dead consciously, you know, kept my eyes averted, but so I could still see it out of the periphery of my vision and just waited there for this bear to go back over the ridge and, uh, for it to not be able to see me if I started moving again and just hoped against hope that it that it didn't notice that I was doing anything and, and didn't think that it had to come back and finish the job. And so that's how you knew this bear wasn't hungry, this bear. Uh, and it, and it, it wasn't as if it was sadistic either because it, it just wanted to do what was required really to, <laughs> to get you out of its path. Um, right. I mean, you know, there's a lot, there's a few different kinds of encounters. There's, um, there's a predaceous encounter where the bear sees someone as food and that's a whole nother level of horrifying. You know, people um, might wake up being dragged back to a den or something or, or, um, or not wake up at all. Um, and uh, you know, mother with cubs and that's um, that's a different situation. And this is a very like classic defensive encounter where the bear saw me as a threat. And so that threat needed to get eliminated to ensure the safety of the bear. So once it had achieved that mission and I was 
down and out on the ground, you know, it kind of said, all right, I can leave now. I've, I've defended myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> I, if it, uh, if it had seen me moving again, there's a very good chance that it, you know, would have come back and been like, oh, it needs another tussle. Um, so, you know, it, it's possible that it could have changed its mind and realized that this was an opportunistic food source. Um, so I'm really glad that, <laughs> that it didn't. Um, but yeah, just as soon as it was, it was done, it was, it was ready to go and head back and put some ice on its snout from that Pelican case or something. <laughs> So how long did you wait lying there and playing dead before you called out for help? I don't know how long I was waiting. I mean, it was probably, you know, a matter of of something counted in seconds. Um, but right. I, I waited until it had gone back over the ridge and it had gone far enough so that I, if I stood up completely, it wouldn't be able to see where I see at all, mm. you know? Um, so I would guess that was like 15, 30 seconds, but it was the longest, uh, 15 or 30 seconds that I, that I waited because <laughs> I just, all I wanted to do was get out of there and I just waited and waited. Um, but I didn't want to wait so long that if it, you know, decided to come back, I was still there. So I wanted to leave as soon as I could. So did you call for your friends to come to you or were you able to drag yourself down to where they were? I was able to get back on my own. I was worried. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That if I made a sound, the bear would realize that I was mm-hmm. still there and it would come back. So at this point, I was being as quiet and stealthy as I could. So I got up. I felt my leg by now my adrenaline was just going crazy and it was masking everything. Everything was kind of dull and I felt my leg and it was wet and I thought, Oh no. Cause that, if that's that much blood, I'm, I'm really in bad shape. Um, and I looked at my hand and it wasn't blood. It was bare saliva, all gooey between my fingers, which was much better. And so I, uh, grabbed the things that I could see that I dropped. I grabbed my Pelican case. For some reason I grabbed the book that had fallen out of my pocket and, I uh, started running back to camp, which was 200 yards away as the crow flies. And the last 50 were 100 vertical feet down. That's the ridge that I'd climbed up to get to this plateau at the top. And the whole time I was going back there, I was I was trying to be as quiet as I could. And I was checking over my shoulders to see if the bear was coming back uh, to finish the job. And I was just hoping that I was going in the right direction because I was so turned around. There's a very good chance that I could get to where I thought camp was and I could look down and see some ridge that's completely unfamiliar to me. I could have been running in the wrong direction. The bear could have been running towards the guys, you know, I didn't know. So I was just hoping that I was headed back towards them. And then once I saw them and, um, and knew that they'd actually hear me, if I yelled, then I could yell to them for help. And, you know, I wouldn't be alone anymore. 
And so I finally got to this ridge and I looked down and I, I saw the canoes and then I saw the tents and I saw the guys sitting in the bug tent. And I knew at that point that I could yell for them. And, uh, I checked over my back one more time to make sure that the bear hadn't snuck up behind me. And I yelled down, I said, bear. And they said, whatever, Alex, <laughs> they thought I was <laughs> playing a, a, a joke yeah. on them. A pretty sadistic joke. Yeah. <laughs> I said, bear, <laughs> I said, you know, basically they didn't, they didn't believe me. And I kept yelling down to them and I said, no, I got attacked by bear. And, uh, every other word was an expletive, which I won't, <laughs> I won't <laughs> say here, but I was like, I don't care if these guys believe me or not. I need to get down this ridge so that they can start tending to my wounds. Cause I was like basically dragging my foot. Um, I didn't know what my injuries were. I just knew I had to get back to camp and I just was filled with this, this adrenaline rush and this energy to do that. And then they could mm -hmm. take care of the rest. And so I was running down this ridge as best as I could. And I was like, Dan's going to need to know what my injuries are so he can start planning. I was like, I got attacked by a bear and I got hit in the face. Not if I'm cut, I got bit in the thigh and there's blood on my foot for some reason. And I don't know why. So I was wearing sandals and my other foot was covered in blood and my foot that wasn't working right was not covered in blood. I didn't know what exactly was going on. But uh, going down that as quickly as I could, it took me about 10 minutes to scramble up this ridge and it took me about... Uh, a minute to get down <laughs> and were you, were you bleeding profusely was was that gonna be an issue were you losing a lot of blood i was bleeding um i would not call it profuse i would say uh sig significant or or heavy bleeding um but uh you know we had to we had to take care of that blood loss and make sure it didn't get worse but it was um really scary how close it was uh, because one of the canines went in um, all the way right next to my femoral artery. And if it had hit that, which was a quarter inch away, if it had hit that, I would have been um, bleeding profusely. It would have been spurting with my pulse. And then after just a few minutes, I would have, I would have died from blood loss. So right next to that. Um, so I had a bunch of like venous and capillary bleeding from that, um, that we were able to control pretty well with uh you know direct pressure and dressings um so <laughs> that would have been what, that would have been what way was worse. the sort of um what, can you recall what kind of mental state you were in at, at that moment and and that of you know the people around you your friends was it disbelief or were you you know what sort of state do you go into? Does adrenaline just make you think in practical terms about survival? I'd say I was in this very practical state until I was under the care of others. And, um, you know, that's something that that uh, I've heard other people talk about too, where, you know, you keep going as long as like you have to, as long as it's on you to do that. And obviously it's dependent on a lot of factors, but you do what you can. And then once you reach care with other folks, your body kind of steps back a little bit because it's been using these incredible reserves to get you to that point. And I experienced that. So I got I got to Dan and by the time I got to him, I couldn't move my leg anymore. I was actually moving my leg with my arms the last however far on the hill. 
Um, so I was, I was definitely in bad shape, um, and just couldn't move my leg anymore. And, um, you know, I, I was in, <laughs> in that logistical handoff. This is what needs to happen mode until he laid me down on the mat and he started doing his head to toe assessment. And I kind of realized you know, I guess subconsciously that, that, okay, he's got it from here. And I started to shift into, um, that sort of disbelief and recognition of the gravity of what had just happened. And that was very overwhelming for me. Cause I, you know, <laughs> I hadn't been thinking about that very much other than, you know, when I was about to die and, and, or feeling like I was about to die and experiencing the emotions with that. But then when I got back to the ground and he was working on me, I started to realize the ripple effects of this experience and the impact that it would have or that it could have had more, more specifically um, on everyone that I knew or had interacted with. I mean, you know, when you lose someone, especially when you lose them traumatically, um, it impacts those around you. You know, of course, it impacts the guys on the trip. Um, and this impacted the guys on the trip, but, you know, if I had not made it, you know, all of my classmates would have, uh, been impacted by that. My family, you know, um, like it just kind of keeps going. And I, I didn't have my life flash before my eyes, um, especially not up on the hill. Everything was very focused on what was happening. But when I got back down there and started, um, kind of feeling that ripple effect, I started to see pictures of all the people that I knew. Um, and they just started flipping through as if on a Rolodex and it just went faster and faster. And, uh, that was overwhelming. And I started to like, I don't know if I was hyperventilating, but I started to feel really faint and, <laughs> and just, yeah, overwhelmed by, by recognizing the impact of what had just happened to me and how it could have impacted everyone else and so then you had to what you had to work out how you were going to get to proper professional medical attention but you were miles away from civilization effectively so so what what did you decide to do yeah that was a big challenge and i mean we were we had a satellite phone with us, so we had the ability to communicate. Um, they didn't have really like the spot beacons and things. They had EPIRBs back in the day, which are um, kind of the equivalent that sailboats used to use. But we had satellite phone, which allowed us uh, two-way communication. And we found out um, once Dan was able to communicate with camp that um, basically a helicopter was not available. And that's kind of the go-to. Um the next options were going to be upping the ante significantly. We're classifying them as as high risk rescue scenarios. You know, you think of like pararescuemen um, jumping out of a C one thirty and parachuting down to stabilize someone and prepare them for transport. Um, you know, that's a lot of risk to that team. Um, you know, we're really fortunate that we have those resources for when they're indicated, um, and they've been put to good use in recent years for sure. But I was I was stable at this point. We had a long list of injuries. We had a long list of anticipated problems, but I was stable. 
and um so it, it wasn't uh the right situation to to escalate it to one of those higher risk rescues so without that kind of default one and not uh escalating to that next one the uh decision was made that we would continue on our under our own power to try to get to baker lake um which was about 100 miles of paddling away from where we were and that was almost all down river um so it was it was a paddle that could be done in a few days and so a lot of dominoes were put in place to um you know prepare for for that and uh, we were talking with medical control about you know what's that prolonged care management what are some of those higher risk anticipated problems that we had to consider like rabies which um i think at the time it was still 100% fatal and now it's like there's a few instances where people haven't died but you have to get that post exposure series within a certain time period and it has to be there right wow. you know if they don't have it can't get it so there were a lot of things that we were considering um you know they uh one of the benefits of of staying with the group and continuing um, was that the likelihood of PTSD would decrease uh, the longer I stayed with that group. And if you think about it, you know, of anyone in the world, they're probably the ones who understand most what I had just gone through mm. and, could, you know, maybe a help with my processing it. Um, so uh, I, I, I feel really fortunate that, you know, the team that was looking into this situation was considering all the factors, you know, what's acutely a problem, but also what's, what's something that could become a problem further mm. down the line as well. Um, and you, you were able to paddle at least. So you could, it wasn't like they had to get you somehow into the boat and, and do it entirely themselves. You could effectively contribute to your own rescue. Is that right? Exactly. And that's a big that's a big factor. I mean, if this had been a backpacking trip, um, it would have been a different situation. You know, they, it, <laughs> you wouldn't have been carrying, able to walk. Uh, someone that distance is, is, mm. is not, uh, not realistic <laughs> and not, not advisable. You can do something else, but yeah, you know, once they got me into the boat, I could help get us closer to Baker Lake and I could, you know, like you said, assist with my own rescue, which was really empowering and, and, uh, cathartic for me. I'm always trying to figure out what is it, what is that action that I need to take to achieve the outcome that I'm looking for? Is there nothing I can do? Well, okay, then I'll try to step back. But if there's something that I can do that I can put into practice to change that outcome, that's where I want to put my focus. So being able to paddle was a, a big piece of that. <laughs> so at this stage when you're like so it took you a few days to get to to the nearest town and you're paddling it did it start did you start to wonder whether or not it had all been a dream because i mean what you're describing is something completely surreal and it all happened fairly quickly right i mean obviously you've got the injuries you know it did happen but did it did it start to feel like did that actually take place was i attacked by a bear <laughs> a little bit i mean i i think more for me it was it was i mean it was this indelible experience that just it was kind of reappearing in in ways that weren't flashbacks but it was kind of applying to the world around me i'd see boulders and think they were bears and um 
and I would imagine them like jumping out of the water at me and and all these things. So like there was this constant reminder that yes, this just happened. The pain of my leg, of course, is one thing as well. But I think the the dream uh, possibility was most manifest in imagining like other people's reaction. You know, when you think about what happened, it was me by myself on this hill. I was gone for minutes, essentially, from the rest of the group. And I come back with with these injuries and I was feeling like, you know, no one's going to believe me that this happened. And it's kind of this, I don't know if imposter uh, syndrome, but, you know, this this worry that that maybe, you know, other people aren't going to believe that this terrible trauma happened to you and that it happened the, the way that you remember it. Um, and, you know, I, I think like the day after I was able to ambulate on my own at this point on flat ground. And so I was like very, very hobbled, but I was limping around and I was talking to Mike and it might've been the next day, but it was not that long after. And, um, I was like, you know, I almost, I almost wish there was like this set of, of claw marks on my forearm or something that, you know, could people could look at and be like, Oh yeah. Um, you know, one of the, like the first reactions I often get when I'm talking to people in person and they hear that I was attacked by a grizzly bear, they look me up and down and they they'll say something like, Oh, I don't see any injuries or, Oh, you look great or what have you. And, and all of my injuries are things that most people don't see. And, you know, that's a blessing. And it also has this, it like puts this burden of like, of, of conveying to people that this happened and um i guess i kind of recognized that would be a challenge early on <laughs> you've written this wonderful book about the experience you tell the story in you know really vivid detail you kind of just listening to you and reading your book you know it really puts you there in in the in the terror of it all but what's the bigger impact on you all these years 18 years later you know uh, on a surface level, this is a, a great boy's own story of kind of daring do and adventure and escaping death. But even though you were, and you know, and I, as I understand it, you still are like a, a naturally adventurous person, you know, and you're mm-hmm. able to laugh about a lot of this stuff now. What's the long-term impact on, on your psyche and your emotional life from going through something like that? There are a few things I think that really stick with me, you know, um, some of the more like i guess expected um you know i i've i've uh had to come to terms with this experience and how it it impacts me especially with specifics around traveling in the wilderness i knew early on that this could keep me from going out and doing these kinds of experiences mm-hmm. and i knew that that was something that i wanted to work through and to overcome so that I could go back out into the woods. Um, and I think that also played into feeling like I didn't want this experience to define me, um, which I've kind of come to terms with that as well. But as far as like getting back into the wilderness, I sort of microdosed myself to get back out there. So I would have situations that had a little more control, like starting out with a cabin um, not long after and 
And then like the next year when we went to the Boundary Waters for the first time, um, which is probably the most similar sort of situation where you're, you know, traveling by canoe in the backcountry under your own power in a wilderness area. Um, I I had all these different security blankets that I had to bring with me um, to make me feel more in control and prepared. <laughs> so I wore like a tactical vest and a, mm. I had bear spray and a machete and all kinds of kind of over the top things. Um, but that's what I needed at that point to feel more comfortable. And over the years, I was able to, you know, get out there more and dial those things back to a more reasonable thing um, and and more reasonable level of of uh, gear that I bring for bears. Um, and I was able to, to work on that enough so that I was able to go back to, uh, work at, at camp at Minogen and, and, uh, guide kids on their own transformational experiences in the wilderness. Um, which was kind of, it was kind of a goal that I guess I had placed, uh, early on that that would, um, be something that I would really find fulfilling and kind of bring things full circle in some ways. And then after that, I was able to, uh, come back and, and work with the St. Louis County rescue squad to do search and rescue in Northern Minnesota, which, um, has been really empowering in that I'm able to take these experiences and this, all this additional training that we go through and apply that to folks who are experiencing something perhaps, you know, along the lines of what I went through. So I'm able to apply that. I have a little bit, uh, different level of empathy with these folks and, and make a difference for them. Um, so that's that's kind of the wilderness side of things, you know. On the other side, I've I've had a lot of, um, you know, I, I have a, a higher uh, startle <laughs> response, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so like if some a, a branch breaks as we're going out through the woods or whatever, I'm like instantly in, you know, identify what that is and and figure it out, and my heart's just going mm-hmm. crazy, and and um, I'm I'm figuring that out, you know, so that I can respond as needed. Um, so that's been a challenge and that just kind of has lingered. Um, but, uh, you know, being out and doing those things more has helped with that for sure. Um, you know, one of the other things, I think one of the kind of big sort of intrinsic or subconscious things that I took away from this experience was this sense of purpose. And it gave me this strong feeling that things could have gone significantly differently up there. Mm. Uh, for one, <laughs> all of the little things that had to align for me and the bear to be there at the same time is just like, there's, there's a lot of kind of happenstance there or, you know, whatever word you want to put on it. But then for it to play out the way that it did and for me to survive, but also survive with as few injuries as I did, and to recover as well as I have, you know, it, it, it kind of imbued me with this sense of like, okay, that happened so that I can do something else in the future. Mm-hmm. And that's been um, a driving force. And it's been kind of a challenge at the same time, because I always feel like it's hard to figure out to pinpoint, you know, and you, you, you mm-hmm. rarely know all the ripple effects of something that you've, that you've done. Um, so that's been part of the drive to to do things like the rescue squad. Um, but I've also felt like there's something bigger out there that I need to work towards. Um, and I wanted to figure that out before I put this book out there. I wanted to be able to tie it up in a bow and present it mm-hmm. and say, this happened so that I could, you know, save this school bus full of 
children or whatever it is, you mm. know, from the cliff. I don't know. Think of insert <laughs> uh, <laughs> classic rescue uh, making a different situation there. What I realized, though, is that I could spend my entire life waiting to figure out what that purpose was and never publish the book. And I never tell this story. And I I think that realization really uh, shone a light on how I don't have to do that. I don't have to figure it out in order for the story to make an impact on other people and for them to take their own lessons from this experience. So that was when I decided that it was time to to write the book and and transfer uh, that experience to other people. Did you ever have counseling for PTSD or anything like that? I didn't have formal counseling for PTSD. I think that was probably um, the biggest gap in my treatment. I think that when you deal with something like this, um, I think that should just be like, part of the process like you had this happen okay we got to take care of your injuries we also need you to talk to uh, a professional resource about that um you know i kind of talked a little bit about some of the steps that i took um with family and friends to get myself back out there um and through the process of of documenting what happened i did a lot of the things that that you end up doing with with a professional where you're doing yeah. like journaling and and um unpacking what happened so that you can better understand it so that it's uh not going to jump out at you when you're not expecting it so i kind of pieced together some of those uh, techniques i guess but i think you know if i were to do it at all again i definitely would um partner with some professionals early on to just you know have that <laughs> have that go more more smoothly and more quickly and um and make sure that we're not missing things right and my last question is do you still dream about the bear i do sometimes dream about the bear um whether it's that bear or a different bear um my dreams are not usually replays of what happened they're more like the bear is um it's it's there and it's in a place that it shouldn't be and the best example of that is uh was early on and i've had similar ones since but um i was at camp within the weeks after sorry there was a squeaking noise <laughs> it's okay so i was in camp uh just weeks after um after after the attack and i was laying in a bunk and within the room i had this dream that was staged within the room and there was this this bear the 600 pound bear right next to me in the middle of the room just breathing and it's like this presence and i've had dreams like that since where i'm in the place where i'm where i am physically and that's where the dream will manifest and um, the bears kind of there or or uh, I'll see I'll have dreams of bears where they're like a pack of bears and they're doing non bear things. <laughs> but I've been really lucky in that I don't have a lot of those. It's more like when I'm visiting this memory a lot, then I'll have it. The most tangible example of that was when I was writing the actual bear attack. It was the last section that I wrote for the whole book because I knew it was going to be. The most challenging thing for me and i spent a week uh 
up in the middle of the night writing about this terrible experience uh, to the point, you know, at at the depth where I can actually write down what happened in a way that's understandable. And that brought back a lot. Um, But I also felt like after doing that and after completing all the process of writing the book, it's been a much less, it's happened a lot less. And it's almost like having that book now, I've got this experience that I can put on the shelf. And uh, when I want to take it off and take a look at it, I can. Um, but for the most part, it's it's just up there and uh, it's not going to come out at me. Well, I'm really happy about that. Um, it's a nice note to end it on. I'm happy for you. Uh, you seem like you're in a good place. And I just think that being able to, it's, it's really interesting. You didn't do formal counseling, but I'm a big believer in people just acknowledging what they've been through, whatever it is. A lot of us don't because everyone buries feelings and experiences and tell themselves they've got to be tough and they've got to just move on and push it down. And obviously you've been through something a lot more traumatic than most of us go through in our lives. And you found that just by getting it out and unpacking it, as you say, and and facing up to it and acknowledging it and understanding that it would have had an impact on you, that in itself is extremely helpful. I think we can all learn something from that. I hope so anyway. Yeah. Um, Alex, thank you ever so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's an incredible story and you tell it uh, really powerfully. Um, and like I say, I think everyone can take a bit of inspiration and learning from your experiences, however unique they were. Uh, so thanks very much for your time. Best of luck with the book. Thank you so much, Sam. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. That was Alex Messenger. His book, The 29th Day, is fantastic and is out now. I will put a link to it in the blurb accompanying this show. Thanks for listening. And remember, if you don't already, subscribe to The Reset at Sam Delaney dot substack dot com for just five pounds a month you can get access to a ton of podcasts extra material newsletters and the occasional live stream too until next time gang thanks for listening be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.